0: Before we jump into this episode, I'd like to take a moment to tell you about the book I've been working on. It's called Start Finishing, How to Go from Idea to Done, and it will be released on September 24th, 2019. You may already know that I only really care about productivity because it's how we become our best selves in the world. All of us have gaps between what we think we can be, what we dream we can be, who we want to be, and what shows up day to day. Start Finishing Bridges Those Gaps. The book will give you the tools, mindsets, and practices that help you do the stuff your soul is yearning to do, but that somehow seems eternally out of reach. It also features contributions from my personal friends, colleagues, and teachers, such as Seth Godin, Dan Pink, Laura Vanderkam, Jonathan Fields, Susan Piver, Joshua Becker, James Clear, Chelsea Dinsmore, Sereni Rao, and many more. I'm really proud of this book and I consider it our book rather than my book, meaning that it would not have happened if it weren't for the amazing connections I've made with the productive, flourishing community over the last 12 years. So, thank you. If you're interested in the book and you want to learn more and maybe pre-order it, check it out at StartFinishingBook.com. That's StartFinishingBook.com. If you're struggling to keep up with processing your email, SaneBox might be just the tool you need. It has saved me hours of time each month, and the amount of peace of mind I get from it is priceless. SaneBox sorts through your email and moves all of the trivial stuff into a different folder, so the only messages in your inbox are the ones you actually want to see. Aside from removing all of the junk so you can focus on the messages that matter, there's this great feature called the black hole. Move an email into that folder and you'll never hear from the sender again. One and done. Just how we like it. Because email can be such a bear and keep you from finishing the stuff that matters, we worked out a great deal for our listeners. Visit sanebox.com forward slash giant, and they'll throw in an extra $25 credit on top of the two-week free trial. You don't have to enter the credit card information unless you decide to buy, so there's really nothing to lose. Again, that's sanebox.com forward slash giant. And now, on to the episode. You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today. One, we need to talk as much about the work of our lives as we do about the life of our work. And so much of this industry and productivity has talked just about economic work, your careers, your business, so on and so forth. And that's an important part of our lives, but it's a part of our lives. And For many of us, it's not the center point of our lives. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Productive Flourishing Podcast. It's been a minute since Angela and I have done a podcast. And, you know, she was thinking, what was it, a couple weeks ago? She's like, hey, Charlie, are we doing an interview for the book on our own podcast? And I was like, um, sure. (laughs) To be completely honest, I hadn't even thought about it. But she has a point, like, why are we going around and doing 30-some-odd interviews all over the place? And we're not talking to you about the book. So, she's going to jump in. And do this kind of interview style, which is interesting in a lot of ways that we'll get into. So, hi, Angela.
1: Hi. I'm super pumped to be back here with you today. And, you know, just kind of going with content in the book, I would imagine that you weren't thinking about that because you have a lot of other active projects on your plate right now.
0: Quite a few. Quite a few. It has been a really great ride with the book. It's been a roller coaster ride. A lot of ups and downs, Mm -hmm. um, but... I think on the whole, a lot more ups that have been a lot higher mm-hmm. than there have been downs and low downs. For sure. So speaking of low downs, I want to give a low down about sort of Angela's relationship with this. <laughs> so, because though she might not have her hands on the keyboards doing a lot of typing, like Angela is very much a part of my writing process. She is one of my readers, like when I'm writing. Sorry, she's one of my avatars. When I'm writing and I'm like, how do I explain this? Here's what's coming up. But she's also someone who gets into enough that a lot of my writing is actually to Angela for how to fix some of the things that she's in. What's really fascinating about this is we have been co-coaching each other. We have been reading each other's writing for a couple decades now. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know how much the book would resonate with Angela, especially with, I'm like, she's heard it all. But turns out, not so much.
1: True. So, the book in case you don't already know and haven't been around Productive Flourishing for a little while now, is Start Finishing, How to Go from Idea to Done. And it does release on September 24th, which is very, very soon. And as Charlie was saying, he and I have been together for quite some time and in that we've been in we've been in high school together, undergrad, grad school, we were professors at the same time. We both write at Productive Flourishing among other places, and so we have been readers for one another for a very long time. And one of the things that I know was super exciting for me about your book, Charlie, is that when I had the chance back in December, to sit down and read the finished manuscript, I was a little nervous before I started, because as Charlie mentioned earlier, I've I went into it thinking, well, I've probably heard all of this before. Um, it's from the work Charlie's been doing for the last twelve years, and I also know that he's a really good writer, so I was excited to read it. What I didn't expect was to walk away feeling as seen and heard as I did reading this book that I know wasn't written specifically for me, but probably me in mind at times throughout the book and the whole avatar process. But just how much heart and soul was in this book, which many people will put into the category of productivity. I feel like it's productivity and personal development and spirituality and all these other things combined in this one book. Um, All of that said, I was blown away and so excited about how much I loved the book when I read it. And I feel personally like that says a lot for someone who has been reading and in your work for almost as long as you've been in it to actually get a chance to sit down and read it and learn a lot. I actually learned a lot, even though I thought I knew what I was going to be reading.
0: Now, that sounds like something one would expect a partner to say about someone's writing. And I have to say, if I'm not hitting it on my writing, Angela <laughs> is one of the first people's like, this ain't it. Like, no, it is, mm, no, go back. Yeah. And so it's it was super nice, you know, and it's, I think part of the joy of writing the book has been part of the way that it developed, and, you know, Angela was actually my second reader. Haven Iverson, at Sounds True, was my first reader, and it was a similar sort of scenario where I was like, whenever I got stuck, I was like, okay, this sounds like garbage.
2: <laughs>
0: it's not coming together, but my one job is to write to Haven. Just write to Haven. Don't write for everybody. Don't write for the trolls. Don't write for... Just write for Haven. And Haven had, you know, luckily, a, a very similar sort of scenario, which was super helpful. So, If you don't have early readers that really, one, have your back, two, can give you critical feedback, um, go get you one. Go get you several, because Mm -hmm. it makes a huge difference on the road to writing something like this.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I don't want to get there yet, but that is something that I want us to come around to talking about a little bit later um, on getting the people in. To support you. Of course, you know, I'm already alluding to success packs, mm-hmm. um, which I'm going to ask you about here in a little bit. But what I really want to start with is, you know, this is a book on how to start and finish what matters. It's so much more than just a productivity book, though. Um, it guides us through how to do it with our hearts and our souls. And I'll be honest, you know this already, Charlie, um, probably those who are listening do not necessarily know this about me, but I've been repelled in many, many ways from the productivity space for a long time now, which is, is an interesting place to be in whenever you are the co-founder and co-owner of a site called Productive Flourishing, which <laughs> um, But I often feel like it's been the good old boys club or what I've read in the past um, and what has been out there for us to consume and use these frameworks didn't get me. They didn't get me at all. It was this one size fits all. And I was definitely the odd duck that it didn't fit. But come to find out over the more than a decade that we've been doing this and you more so than me. There were a lot of odd ducks out there who were not getting the help and the resources they needed from the content and the people who were already out there. So what I'd really like to start with talking about is why this book is so different from other productivity books and why um, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here because I know things that other people don't know because of where I'm at behind the scenes, but... The advanced reviews and the advanced feedback that we've gotten from people has been phenomenal. And one of the themes that we've seen throughout is that there are so many people who have had a chance to read this book early who have said, I feel like this is finally something that's for me and is actually going to help me. This is different. I'm wondering if. You can talk about that. Why do you think that feedback is coming through? Did you intentionally set out to write a book that would include more people?
0: First off, shout out to the street team. Um, The street team is just the group of people. We call them the do crew um, who's been giving a lot of this feedback and joined us really early in this process Mm -hmm. um, and have been an instrumental part, part of this. To answer the question, especially that you're left with yes and no, um, throughout some of these conversations, especially some of the conversations on other podcasts, like it's really, it's been made clear how I accidentally wrote an anti-establishment book and didn't mm-hmm. mean to in, in that particular way. Um, but where, but where I did come from was the fact that so many people in productivity and personal development have been left out of the conversation. And I find that really frustrating. It's It's been a good old boy club, and not to go too much deeply in there, but it's been largely written, written by white men
2: mm-hmm.
0: that have had a certain perspective and, you know, that that does not encompass the reality of the rest of us, doesn't encompass the reality of, you know, those of us who are underdogs who didn't start with a whole lot and definitely didn't have people tell us that, you know, we were the ones, we were the chosen ones to go out and do great things. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, haven't really put ourselves as the primary hero in the story that's going on around us, as opposed to, you know, whether the supporting cast or sometimes the villain. And so what I wanted to do was really honor that, one, we need to talk as much about the work of our lives as we do about the life of our work. And so much of this industry and productivity has talked just about economic work. Mm-hmm. Your careers, your business, so on and so forth. And that's an important part of our lives. But it's a part of our lives. Mm-hmm. And for many of us, it's not the center point of our lives. And specifically, who gets left out of the conversation a lot of times is women. And I've been writing about this for a long time at Productive Flourishing. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, getting myself in trouble, right? So if you want to see this, go read the post, um, What If Women Cared About Productivity.
1: Oh, yeah, I remember that one.
0: Remember how much heat I caught about that? Because it's the headline, because everyone jumped in. It was like, how dare you think women don't care about productivity? I was like, did you actually read the article? Or did you get caught into the headline? Because the main headline was that, um, or the main point was that because this conversation has been about prioritizing work, excuse me, prioritizing economic work, Mm -hmm. And made that the end-all be-all of the conversation. Many people, i.e. women, who prioritize differently um, have been left out and have been in this situation to where, you know, we've said things like, or they've said things like, you know, I really want to be productive, but I really have to take care of my kids. And Mm -hmm. I'm like maybe that's really what we mean under productivity. And and it's all good. I mean, we get this from Taylorism and, you know, the principles of scientific management and productivity has been about increasing like where it started was increasing the amount of yield from workers. Mm -hmm. So it was very much that conversation. And I think so many of us wake up and think what, you know, what really goes in their head is how am I going to get everything done that I need to?
2: Mm -hmm.
0: How am I going to square this circle of needing to take care of my economic work, needing to take care of my relationships, needing to take care of myself, needing to take care of my finances, needing to take care of my health, all the different things we need to take care of that's so much more than just economic work. Mm-hmm. And when you put all of those priorities, you put all of those values on the table, what you see is that it's one of those things where we do have to make it all work. We do have to like look at everything equally and sometimes make some tough choices Yeah, to not do certain economic projects because we have personal projects that matter more to us. Mm-hmm. And just where I'll slide there... And, uh, you know, the funny thing about giving an interview on your home turf is on the one hand, people have heard you say stuff over and over again. On the other hand, there's always new people who need to hear it in a different way. Mm -hmm. In my language, a project is anything that takes time, energy, and attention to see through. Mm -hmm. And that can be really overwhelming for people because when you think about it, all the stuff of your life is a project. Yeah. Right? Um, the The going to get groceries, the errands, the doctors, the getting kids to and fro, taking care of your parents taking care of your aging cat, right? Whatever it is, it's a project on top of all the other work projects and economic projects that you've got. And once we get over that feeling of feeling like the earth is sitting on your chest because of all the projects, yeah, you can just say, wait wait a second. Maybe it's that I'm not just a slacker. Maybe it's that I'm not lazy or a procrastinator. Maybe it's I've got way too many projects going on right now.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And, you know, we can solve... Angela knows this, and if you've ever heard talk, me talk about it before, like I don't like talking about overwhelm, not just because it's an emotion, like I love talking about emotions and feelings and things like that. But overwhelm is a call excuse me, it's an effect of something. When we start talking about overload and the overload is what causes the overwhelm, then we can find some peace and sanity and flow in our lives because we can solve against overload. Mm -hmm. We can, you know, we only solve through overwhelm through um, emotional therapy in different ways like that. And so, I really want people to see how overloaded they are. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit of pain and discomfort that comes with that. Yeah. But once we see how overloaded we are, we can start figuring out how to change the load. Mm -hmm. Rather than believing that if we just work stronger and faster and better, that someday we're going to be able to... Like get through the load. You're not. You're going to add to that load and yeah. still be overwhelmed and still be in the same position where you're like, man, I rocked the hell out of this to-do list this week. But that stuff that I put in that closet, that mental, emotional, psychological closet or virtual closet, it's still not getting done. I still haven't touched it. And life is precious and short. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, the days you spend doing all that other stuff and not really feeding the projects and the work that matter most to you, um, you don't
1: get those back. Yeah, that's so true. And, you know, that leads me to wanting to have you talk a little bit about what you talk about in the book as your best work. And um, I can't help, but see how you were, you know, talking about that as you were, um, discussing just now. And one of the things that I really, really loved about this book is what you consider best work. Will you talk to me a little bit about that? What do you mean by that? And why, why does this book and how does this book help us get to our best work?
0: Okay. So I had to come up with another way of talking about work because for many of us, Work is a four letter word. Now, there's an oddity in the English language that all of our curse words, a lot of our curse words, are four letters long, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Curse or profane words. And we, you know, these are the words we don't want to say out loud. We don't want to talk about. We don't want to touch them. We like, they're just those things we want to avoid or get away from. And work is one of those. Mm -hmm. Um, And as much as I appreciate what the four hour work week is actually about, as opposed to its headline, like We've also, in many ways, especially in the creative and entrepreneurial cor- like culture, have gotten to the point to where we want to do less work.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Except, except, there's a certain kind of work that we want to do more of, right? There's a certain kind of work that our souls yearn to do. And um, that is our best work. It's work that um, benefits you and others when you do it. Kind of like to think of it as, you know, as just in a metaphor. Here is like we're all born on this earth with a certain kind of tree that we are better off in the process of planting it and growing it, but also in the fruit that it yields. And other people are better off because of our growing that tree and the fruit that it yields. Mm-hmm. And each of us have that unique tree. And. It's our job to really do that and do that. And if we don't tend that tree, that one unique tree in the universe does not get cultivated. And in in a very real way, the world is less well off than it would have been had we done it, right? And the reason I want to talk about that way is because a lot of times, especially in the personal development and productivity space, when we start talking about doing our best work or we start doing the work we're called to do, it can seem really like self-centered. Hmm. It can seem really selfish, like there's this thing, screw you guys, I want to do my thing, (laughs) you're keeping me from doing the thing. But I want to shift the conversation to be about the fact that for so many of us, our best work is for us and other people. And that it doesn't create a scenario by which we have to choose us versus them.
2: Hmm.
0: It's both. It doesn't mean that, like, other people can do your work for you. That's the trick,
2: right? Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but they benefit from the work. And so we can let go of some of the head trash around that type of work. And everyone, cool. Well, the other thing that I'll say is your best work is uniquely yours. Mm. And though someone can do a close copy of it, right? Though someone can do something that looks like it, much like we have our own v, our own DNA, like it's going to be slightly different in only the way that you can do it. Right? And I think that's really important because a lot of times, um, when you're in the deepest throes of thinking about doing your work or doing the work, it's like, and you know what? Does it really matter? Yes, it matters. Only you can create this work in this way, and only the people around or the people around you are only going to benefit it in a way um, that only you can you can do there. So there's a, I I'm. A little bit scared to use the word, but Angel, know where I come from. There's a sacredness to your best work
2: mm-hmm.
0: that's different than the cog and a wheel work that you might do somewhere else. Like if you're not there, that work does not happen, mm-hmm. and the world is worse off for it. The last thing I'll say about it is your best work and the projects, which I call your best work projects, the projects that really fuel that best work, are so easily displaced by other stuff because though people will be better off once they've seen you do the work and they've seen the product of that work usually people aren't coming to you saying we need you to do that thing that only you can do mm. right we're coming people come to us with their projects people come to us with their priorities their timelines and they're asking us to do that so your best work is it's work that usually requires you to do it over the course of quarters or years. And it's just so easy for us to get caught up in saying yes to the short-term projects and requests from other people. Mm. Um, and, you know, that's why we end up putting it in that closet that I mentioned is because in faced with the option of doing this work that can scare the hell out of us, where we're not clear what the outcome is going to be, Mm-hmm. Where we've tied so much of our identity to that work versus saying yes, yeah, or excuse me, I, and I will say, and having to say no to other people and other, other opportunities versus just saying yes to the things coming to you, we choose the latter
1: mm-hmm. and miss out. Yeah. I'm curious if you can give maybe just a couple of examples of either. Either where you've seen this in real life, whether it was with your clients or just people you've known or in your own life, where somebody's best work was different than their economic work. And how, how did they square that? What, how do you get to do both?
0: I may have some bad news that you can't do both. You, you may not be able to do both. Mm. So I'm not sure about that yet. Okay. There are cases where, um, let's talk about it. If you're doing economic work and the job is paying the bills
2: mm-hmm.
0: and it's keeping your family safe and secure, um, it's serving priorities for you. Mm-hmm. And I want to honor that, right? And I don't want to be like, if you're doing that work, what are you doing? Leaving, leading this meaningless life, you, you know, being a cog in a wheel. I hate that perspective. Yeah. Because it turns out that that job is doing some work for you, mm-hmm. right? So, honor the crap out of that. And that job is sitting on time, energy, and attention, right? It's taking up the, depending upon your job, right? It's taking up the lion's share of your best time. Um, and it's going to displace other things that you could be doing. You know this. I'm not telling you anything you don't know, Yeah. right? And so, it becomes... One of those scenarios is some of our best work is not economic work, right? Some of us for our best work, it's being a secretary at church Hmm. that requires a certain amount of time. There's no pay to it. There's no sort of thing like that. But that's what we're here to do. Hmm. I want to honor that being little league coaches, right? Sometimes starting nonprofits. Sometimes it's being an activist in your community or being a community builder. There are all sorts of different ways. Sometimes it's raising kids. Sometimes it's, you know, raising pets, volunteering, all of those types of things can be your best work,
2: Mm -hmm.
0: and you may not be able to find an economic outlet for it, and that's okay, right? Life is about more than supply and demand, Mm. and so that's where I want to say it and start with that caveat, that there may not be that way for you to get paid to do your best work, Mm -hmm. and just because you can't get paid to do it doesn't mean that it's not worth doing. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you may also have other priorities because you may be the primary breadwinner of your family. And if you quit your job to do this other thing, then your husband and your kids are really suffering mm-hmm. because you were the primary bre- breadwinner. Okay? Mm-hmm. So I want to honor that reality at the same time that I want to say, and we almost all have free time. or we always we almost all have some discretionary or wasted time that we can steal to work on things that actually matter to us, mm. right? So, though I'm not going to say like, you know, and this was this was a Gary Vaynerchuk line from a, a decade ago, was like, stop watching Lost. Like, if it really <laughs> mattered to you, you'd stop watching Lost. Well, turns out that's recovery. that's recovery time for some people. That's therapy time for some people. And that might be an intentional way that you hang out. So, mm-hmm. I'm not going to judge that. What I am going to say is... Is your habits and time that you spend around watching The Bachelorette, because Lost isn't all, but Bachelorette
2: is,
0: (laughs) is that serving you more than other things you might do, like exercise or spend more time with your kids or read a book or do some writing or do some painting or playing music or attending, you know, the parent-teacher conference or the nonprofit board? Like, I want to have that conversation because if someone can say, you know what, I need... I really need my bachelorette time. I'm like, great. That's your recovery time. Own that. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: But please, please, please stop beating yourself up about everything else that you're not doing. Yeah. Because you've already said that's a priority. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's a long way around answering your question um, about um, what I believe the question was, what do you do when your economic work is not your best work? Mm -hmm. Or what do we do when... When, when there's a difference. But I, I want to tell a story about Michelle Jones real quick, right? Um, just because she's on the brain for different reasons. Um, she's the founder of the Wayfinding Academy. Mm-hmm. And the Wayfinding Academy, um, just full disclaimer, I've been on the board for the Wayfinding Academy for the last few years. Um, and so, on the brain today. Um, Wayfinding Academy started because Michelle Jones was a professor um, at Concordia College, but she had worked in some other places. And she noticed that the way the collegiate system was set up did not actually benefit children or did not benefit students,
2: mm-hmm.
0: right? That it was backwards that we asked students to, you know, go to college and pick a degree and to find a job. And then somewhere along the way, we might ask them, but who do you want to be in the world? Mm-hmm. And so um, with that frustration, that was her economic work, to be clear. Mm-hmm. That was her economic work. But she realized that her best work Or what I would say her best work was, was creating the Wayfinding Academy, which flips that experience on its head. Mm -hmm. And we start by asking students, what does a good life look like for you?
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And what do you want to be in the world? And then the educational experience is crafted so that they can test that with projects and internships and their curricula to get there.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: So, sometimes, the reason I want to tell that story is because Michelle is still a teacher. She's still working in higher education, but that 20% difference mm-hmm. between her showing up and playing the game as is versus creating this new game is the difference between the economic work and her best work. And I want to say, yes, starting your own college, starting your own non- nonprofit is a lofty goal. It's a big sort of thing, but we all have versions of that in the sense where you can show up in your normal job and there might be a way where you're just sort of punching punching the clock ticking the box and seeing that there's a 15 20% shift in the way that you're doing it and only the way that you can do it that transforms it from you know merely economic work
2: mm-hmm.
1: to
0: something that's got your fingerprint on it
1: yeah I love that, and I'm really glad that you used Michelle as an example. Um, it makes me think about another key piece of the insight from the book that I just I really latched onto, and I I love so much, and I can I can just imagine um, what Michelle might say about who she needed to have around her to help yeah. see this. F- project come to fruition, right? This best work project. And so kind of leads me back to the very beginning where, um, you know, we mentioned talking about success packs. And so that was something from this book that I just loved. I love the idea of me not having to sit, you know, in a room by myself and trying to figure it all out and get it out there on my own um, and I think oftentimes about the stories we hear about how lonely it is to, um, to create things in the world. And what I love is how you've talked about this differently. And I'm wondering if you might talk about what what's a success pack um, and why does it matter? Um, how do we get them? What do we do?
0: Yeah. Um, that's like seven questions there.
1: I know. You know me, though. All the things. All the
0: things right <laughs> now. That is definitely my wife. Okay, so there's this link that we haven't talked about yet between what we're calling your best work mm-hmm. and thriving, which mm-hmm. some people will say your best life or a good life. And it turns out that you can't get to a place where you're thriving and living your best life if you're not doing your best work. Mm-hmm. Right? And there's this big gap that so many of us have between sort of the work we're doing and the life we're living today and that best life that we have for ourselves or that great life that we, that we have for ourselves. And that gap is largely doing these best work projects, Mm -hmm. understanding that that also includes the work of your life. Okay. So, um, we, since that's the case, there's another thing that I want to add in there is that it's... I won't say it's impossible, but it's really hard to do your best work by yourself. You can do good work. You can do okay work. But to really do your best work, you need other people. So, when you put both of those things together, you get the fact that to live your best life, you need to build the people around you that help fuel that best life. You can't do it by yourself.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So success packs, what it sounds like, these are the pack of people that you put around yourself for projects specifically, or we could generalize for your life generally.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: One of the things that I did in the book, um, because I realized how difficult it can be to get a grip on your best work and how to make space for it, is I really want people to pick a particular project. Um, chapter two guides people on how to do this, to pick some specific idea that you want to turn into a project because it's easier to create a wedge in your life when we talk about a project as opposed to trying to fix all the parts at once,
2: Mm.
0: right? I definitely recognize that, you know, life is about fixing the plane while flying it,
2: Mm -hmm.
0: right? And so you can't tear down all the wings and all the engines and keep your plane in the air, but you can work on one wing, maybe an engine at a time. Okay, so success pack. I'm going to start by telling, by saying who should not be in your success pack. Okay. Okay. And two types of people, derailers and naysayers. Mm -hmm. Derailers, I'll start with naysayers. Um, Naysayers are, you know, as the philosopher, poet, and musician Taylor Swift has said, um, these are the haters that are just going to hate. Whether it's about you, whether it's your project, whether it's about something you did to them two years ago, whatever it is, your haters are going to hate. And we spend an inordinate amount of time trying to accommodate and appease our naysayers trying to be safe for the trolls trying to you know whatever that is so that we can do our work without having to catch their wrath or attention and it's a lot of wasted time yeah you can't really win over a naysayer and in fact it's worse if you do because then you're playing the game on their t- on their turf and all they have to do is be themselves and you're back <laughs> you're back in that sort of, Um, cycle of fearing, avoiding, messing with a naysayer. Mm -hmm. So, no naysayers in your success pack. As best you can, pretend they don't exist. (laughs) Um, Second type of people, which are harder in many ways, are the derailers. And the thing about derailers are they are people who actually may love you and may be well-meaning people, but your interactions with them and their commentary about your work kneecaps you. Or makes you feel like crap, or makes you feel heavy, or just, you know, they just sap the life out of you, mm-hmm. right? And the super tricky thing about them is that they oftentimes can be loved ones. Yeah. They can be people from your family, they can be friends, they could be, you know, um, that Debbie or Danny Downer friend that you've got um, that you just can't be yourself around, you can't talk about what excites you, because they start either pulling you back into the barrel with them Mm -hmm. or they start shooting you down and they start, you know, being pessimist and super tricky, super, super tricky because many of us creative giants are either reactively in the business of helping people be their best selves, or we take it upon ourselves to do that proactively. (laughs) And so it turns out that you know, derailers and, and people who need a lot of help and support, like, end up in our networks.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And unfortunately, they can't be in our success packs in real ways because um, it takes so much energy to um, involve them in that way. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to be clear here. It's not that you write them out of your life. It's not that you don't care about them. It's just when it comes to thinking about who needs to be a part of your project, mm-hmm. they sit the bench on that one, yeah. right? You can help them in other ways, right? Or you can interact with them in other ways. So if this is your uncle Ron that is otherwise a nice person, but whenever you talk about something is always like tearing it apart and making you feel like crap, like don't talk to uncle Ron about your work. Hmm. Find other things to talk about, right? Don't make the, the Thanksgiving dinner super awkward because you're, got hurt feelings or you're arguing with somebody about why you should be, able, why you're doing your best work and what it should look like. Yeah. Okay. So I give some different strategies for, for talking, for dealing with naysayers and derailers in the book, but generally speaking, focus on your yaysayers,
2: mm.
0: which are the opposite of those. These are the people who have gotten your back. They're the people who, when you talk about your project, um, they question how you're going to be successful, not whether you're going to be successful. Mm. And that's a pretty big distinction. Yeah. And the third thing that I would say about them is they are the people that, you know, whenever you actually practice the vulnerability of like claiming something great you did or claiming that you're about to do something, they're the ones that are like, of course you did that. Or of course you're going to do that. We've seen that the whole time and been waiting for you. Yeah. Right. Big difference in energy. So four different types of yaysayers to put on your success pack. Mm-hmm. One. Your guides. These are your Gandalfs, y- Yodas, Dumbledorfs, um, Morpheus's, whatever other pop culture reference um, that you need there to help you, um, you know, on the project. There are people who are more experienced than you and have walked the road a little bit longer, mm-hmm. but they're not like better than you in the case of like, they are a different type of alien creature that mm-hmm. you can't be um, they're just people who've walked the road longer and have had more experience. Um, they can be uh, people who are no longer with us. They could be spiritual leaders. Just be careful that um, when they are spiritual leaders, there are certain you know things that like will be easier for spiritual creatures with magical powers to do than mere mortals. So, be careful about that. But the main job of your guides is not necessarily to get in your project with you and show you how to do it. They are paradigm shifters and worldview shifters. Mm-hmm. Um, and they help you see that the answer is probably right where you are and that the challenge is probably created by yourself. Mm-hmm. And they tend to say th- like, things like, remember who you are, or, use the force. And you're like, what the hell does that mean? And when they tell you that before you need it, you never, know, you never understand it. Mm-hmm. But in the moment, you get it. And then later on, you get it on multiple different levels. Okay, so those are your guides. Second are your peers. These are your people that are about your same level of accomplishment, power, expertise, experience. These are your co-coaches, your co-mentors. These are your great friends where you can actually talk about things. Maybe it's that person that you talk to over a coffee date every other month. Um, They could be helpful mentors in your workplace or, you know, your boss. That's a possibility as well. And these are people who, they're still not quite in the project with you doing stuff and, and moving the parts around. But they're advising you on how to do it and what's working and what they're seeing and can help you see your blind spots and can um, really make sure that, you know, you're driving forward on that and and supplying resources. But in in sort of an external way, which is different than the third category, which is your supporters, Mm -hmm. which are your people that are in the project with you. They're the ones that are doing things to help you push it forward. They're taking things off your plate. Um, And so these could be your professional teammates Mm -hmm. and coworkers, but I want people to think about the people in their life, their neighbors, their friends, the neighbor kid that watches or that could watch your kids on the weekends or watch your pets on the weekends. Um, It could be your parent who watches your kids and pets, right? There are different people like that, that we can make supporters in the project Mm -hmm. that are not just people in the project, you know, moving things. So you don't necessarily need a specialist. You just need people to help you do different types of things. It could be, and I'll tell a personal example here because most people wouldn't consider it a supporter, but while I was writing this book, I had a ritual. I'd go down to Hart Coffee Shop on Woodstock, Mm -hmm. and there were five or six baristas who all sort of knew me. I knew them. I knew their names. And after a while, they all knew what I wanted to order or what I was going to order because I had a default, had a routine. And I will tell you what, it is incredibly helpful to walk in the door when you've sort of been thinking about writing and maybe it's early in the morning, you still got stumbly brain and not have to order. (laughs) Right. And you sort of like pay for your food and you know, it's coming and it just makes that whole thing easy. So I considered each and every one of them like supporters on my project.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And you know, it, I tend to do a good job of treating people like people generally. Right. Um, And not just baristas or not just janitors and things like that, but it also helped me realize that these people or teammates, and I was going to be working with them for the next nine months or a year. Mm-hmm. So let's be human. Let's have fun. Let's be personable, mm-hmm. right? So again, most people wouldn't consider the group of baristas serving them coffee and food to be a part of the support team, but why not? Mm-hmm. Last group of people are your beneficiaries. And these are the people, including yourself, who benefit from your doing the work and finishing it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: A lot of times when I teach this, especially if I'm doing a workshop, people will first think, how do I get more guides on my project? Let's, let's talk about that.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I actually encourage people to think the, not the opposite way, but I think we need more beneficiaries in our projects for two reasons. One, when you are cognitively stuck, you have someone that you can reach out to mm-hmm. to help you get unstuck. So if you're making something or doing something and you're wondering whether you should do A or B or whether this works, Rather than you trying to figure it out all by your lonesome, you can ask the person that you're building it for. It takes a little bit of vulnerability, saves you six to nine months of screwing around trying to figure out if you're taking the right next step.
2: Hmm.
0: Also, when you're emotionally stuck, you remember that it's not just about you, right? And if you're having to draw from that last little well of inspiration and and motivation, it's one thing to be like, you know what, I'm, going, I'm not going to do it today. I don't know if I've got it, so on and so forth. But if I've told Angela that I'm going to do this thing for her, that's going to make her better off, I'm much less likely to bail on it and to check out. Because I'm not just letting myself down, I'm letting her down.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And so they serve those really critical roles and they are the people who are going to benefit from this. And so that's, for me personally, in this book, I am so glad that we got our street team involved so early because so many of them were beneficiaries of it and hearing their feedback
2: mm-hmm.
0: and hearing them say, because, you know, they're not married to me like Angela is, right? So <laughs> there's, there's a little bit of obligatory niceness there. But to hear people, some of whom have been helpfully critical of my work, hmm be like this really nailed it and I like I didn't, I resisted this, but it's actually really working for me. It's really fueled me to do things like this podcast, right? And other ones, because I'm like, it's not just about me. What if there's someone else out there that needs to hear that? Yeah. And I decided to phone it in for the day.
1: Yeah.
0: Right. Cause it's really about um, you know, for me, my best work is helping people do theirs.
2: Mm.
0: And so that's what I'm about. And if I don't show up and do my work then there are people who, you know, won't be just, you know, even if the book makes them a little bit better off. Well, that much better off, they will not be. Yeah. By me not doing it. So, it's really, really important to think about it from from that perspective. So, whenever you're like, I need more guides because they have the thing that I'm missing, your guides are pretty much going to tell you, you've already got what it takes. Hmm. And maybe do something different than the thing that you've been doing over and over again because that's not working for you. Yeah. So there you go, right? But your beneficiaries are going to tell you something that's really specific and really useful and be there for you in those dark days. And we didn't talk about this previously. But the thing about your best work is that um, you're going to thrash with it more than normal work. Mm. Um, the more it matters to you, the more you're going to thrash. And by thrash, I mean that emotional flailing, that meta work, that quote unquote research that you're doing to make sure you get the right answer. You're going to do a lot more with that. Because think about it. None of us have a mini existential crisis about doing the laundry.
2: Mm -hmm. We might not want (laughs) to do
0: it, but it's not this whole sort of thing. Like, am I the right person to do it? And like, what if I fail? And You know, we don't have that about doing the laundry or getting groceries or putting the trash out or showing up for another meeting, just sort of rote meeting. Mm -hmm. We do have them, those feelings. We do have the crises when we're talking about getting married for the first, second, or fifth time, when we're thinking about starting a business, when we're thinking about starting a nonprofit, when we're grappling with how to get our kid off the couch finally, Mm. when we're... You know, pulling that manuscript and blowing the dust off of it and getting working on it. Like all of those types of things that are your best work. And it's almost like I can tell what someone's best work is by how much they thrash about it. Mm. (laughs) Right? Because if it doesn't call up that emotional sort of painful, that longing, but also that frustration and that mini existential crisis, probably not their best work.
2: Yeah.
0: Right? And so, sometimes that's great. Sometimes we got to go through the work that we think is our best work to discover that underneath that is something else. But when it comes to your best work and, therefore, the best work projects, you're going to thrash about them a lot more. They matter to you. Um, And I'll pause here because the reason it matters to us is because we've so closely tied our identity to the work itself. Hmm. Which puts us in a scenario where, like, if we're successful with it, we start telling ourselves all sorts of stories, like, how do I keep doing it? And and what if I hurt someone? We create a bunch of no win scenarios around it if we're successful. Yeah. If we're not successful, then what does that mean about who we are? And I've been telling myself for four years that I'm going to be, I'm going to write the book, but what if I write it and it really sucks?
2: Mm. Right? Yeah.
0: What if I can't do it? So, we end up in this weird situation that the work we most want to do
2: Mm -hmm.
0: and the work that's most calling to us is the work that we're scared of and that we thrash about the most. Yeah. So I'd say that because as I was talking about the beneficiaries, it reminded me that if you're doing your best work, you're going to be thrashing.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Your guides can help with that. They can you know, help you see that you're thrashing and that you've been walking around in the same circle for the last hour and don't know it, right? Your peers can help you get out of it, but I think the beneficiaries a lot of times can give you the emotional oomph mm. for you to continue the thrashing. Mm-hmm. And the other reason I want to talk about thrashing is because a lot of people have somehow internalized that if it's your best work, it should be easy.
2: Mm.
0: And that if you're struggling, then maybe that's not it. Like, And this is a stupid talent myth that I hate, right? That's like, if you're talented at something, then it comes easy from you at the beginning, and that's what you should do. So therefore, if you struggle when you first start something, then maybe that's not a talent that you have. So don't do that. Go do something you're good at.
1: Ugh, yeah.
0: And it pisses me off because it's a complete, total myth. Um. We get good at something by doing it. And anything worth doing is worth doing badly at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Right? And so, people's story ends up becoming that if I'm thrashing with it, and if it's super hard, maybe it's not for me. Mm. But I want to really reframe or pivot on that and say, maybe if you're thrashing about it, it's because it matters to you. And thus the question becomes, are you going to run away from the fire until it comes up next time? Or are you going to run towards it? And I want more people to run towards the fire to be more courageous in their work and in their life than to see that it gets hard and check out because, you know, if it w- was meant to be, it'd be easy.
2: Nope.
1: Mm. Yeah. Well, I have about well, you know my brain pretty well, so I've got about 37 different things from what you just shared that I was like, ooh, let's talk about that, and I want to ask about this. And there there are a couple of things I want to kind of, I want to tie together, um, and this is where me knowing you personally for so long um, is where I might know a little bit more about you than other people do, so I can... Um, ask some questions that may or may not be comfortable, but you know me, I'm going to do it anyway. So, um, you mentioned early on in the interview and I had a little chuckle and I kept it internally. You were talking about, um, about kind of the, the history of productivity and you brought up Taylorism um, I don't even know if you realize that you, you've you said that. Um, and I, I kind of had an internal little chuckle. I was like, okay, there's, there's the philosopher. Um, all right, all good. Um, and then you talked about um, just several other things that made me think about the different roles and different, in some ways, different people you have been in your life. And so you mentioned another thing that you feel like your best work is helping other people to do their best work, which is awesome. And, you know, thinking about all those things um, and knowing that you're someone who has occupied many different worlds throughout your life, I want to highlight a few things that I know about you. Um, And whether you want to call them roles that you've had or places you've been. And I'd really like kind of just your thought on how this person that is A, B, F, Y, L and like purple and striped and checkmarked equals Charlie Gilkey, who writes this book. So, You know, a few things that that I think are important and that I know have really um, shaped you to be the person you are today. Um, One that people may or may not know about is that you grew up in the South um, in a poor biracial family. Um, You have been an Eagle Scout. You were nominated to West Point. You have been a military leader um, you've been overseas in war. Um, you have experienced many life and death situations. You have been a philosopher, a business owner, a leader, all of these different things. You're also a very spiritual person. How, how do all of these things come together um, and inform your work? And how do they show up in the book?
0: Hmm. I'm not sure how to answer the first one. Um, I can answer the second part of that question. All right, do it. So I had a rule as I was writing. And that rule, I, I sort of had already, but I stole from a song from Brother mm. Um And the line was, whatever comes up, comes out. Mm. And as I was drafting, there were plenty of times where I would be like, what? Where does... Okay, philosopher Charlie, you really took the realm, you really took the helm on that one, or okay, you know, officer Charlie, you really took that one, or okay, business owner. But it was just like whatever came up
2: mm-hmm. that
0: was inside came out. Mm. And if I needed to edit it out later on, that was fine. But it's really the only way that the book got done the way that it did. Mm. And why there are so many places in there where it's like where did that come from or what's that tie-in it was just the different parts of myself tying it all together yeah and not um, one just that that drove it and big shout out to our publishing partner sounds true because as we were thinking about different publishers we might go with what I liked about sounds true is that I suspected that they were going to call out the spiritual call out the philo- the philosophical call out some of the oddities mm-hmm. that I think some of the other publishing um, houses would have sort of tried to round those off and to make it more accessible and more sort of mm-hmm. things. And so, in the book, there are inside jokes galore, <laughs> right? Um, because I was like, how do I talk to my friends about this? How how do I say things? There, there are a couple times where, you know, like, there are things like, I ain't nobody got time for that. Is that... Cr- like correct? No. Like correct English? No. But if you know what it, if you know what that's referencing,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and you've ever talked to me, you know that I will say that, right? Um, and so, yeah. For me, you know, I think people see all of those ands and see some sort of a walking contradiction,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and maybe it is. But for me, I think when we really tap into who we are as people, we're all that way. We're all and people.
2: Yeah.
0: And it just might be that going way back, especially being um, biracial, but racialized as a black boy. Mm-hmm. Um, I always knew that I was both and, and and neither and, you know, and all those different things. And it was very clear from my society around me. Yeah. And so at a certain point, it became like, I can't win this either or game. I'm not, not going to play that. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to be who I am and that's going to have to be good enough for other people because I'm not doing anything else.
2: Mm.
0: And so, you know, it's funny, like even in high school, like I look back and, you know, though I was going to a lot of the leadership things, I was going to like, you know, Arkansas Governor school and, and boy state and things like that. I was also a cheerleader. Um, so a male cheerleader at our school when we hadn't had any in like nine years. Mm-hmm. Right. And it was me and Gabe Anderson, who's also doing great things in the world. Big shout out to Gabe Anderson, Right. um, who like really made the case for why there should be male cheerleaders. And we did that. And so it's like, how, 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 and why did I decide to do that? It looked fun, right? Mm-hmm. I wasn't playing football at the time. What if I was going to do myself? And this seemed interesting and fun and different. And that was enough for me. Right. And that's how, in some ways I ended up as a philosopher. Why? Well, one reason is because like, I couldn't choose which branch of knowledge that I wanted to focus on. And philosophy <laughs> is one of those few that let you know a lot. I mean, let you know a little about a lot, right? Mm -hmm. Rather than getting stuck down a rabbit hole. So I don't, I don't know how to answer that first one in the sense of it's making the best of what I've got Mm -hmm. and always trying to be like, what's available here? What's the best thing available here in pursuing that? And sometimes the best thing available is like, what's the most interesting thing or what really calls to me and doing it. And I realized that a lifetime of doing that seems like you've been in a lot of unconventional positions, but it's just been that same basic story over and over again of like, you know what? i started with nothing and I wasn't, if you look at the sociological context, I wasn't the person tapped to do great things
2: Mm -hmm.
0: and that's all right. But so why not try, why not try to do stuff? Why not try to be about, about some things? And if you, if it doesn't work out, that's okay. Um, but if it does work out, what do you get to do next? What do you get to build next? Who do you get to help next?
1: Yeah. Well, I know that we could talk for forever and ever. Um, you know, I just, I would like to say that what you just said about the and you are this and this and this, and sure, there may be people who have seen you as a walking contradiction because of all the different roles you've played in places and I think that that's what's allowed this book to come through in the way that it did. It is a productivity book, but it's also a personal development book. And it's a book about family. And it's a book about spirituality. And it's it's all the things that make us thriving people in the world. And I will say that it was very clear when reading the book, that you put your heart and your soul into it. And I'm really proud of you. And I can't wait for more people um, to get a chance to read what is there. Oh, thank you. Mm-hmm.
0: I don't know. This process has been really humbling um, to see how many people have shown up. Mm -hmm. in so many great ways. Like, I can't believe some of the contributors that said yes. Yeah. So a lot of times people ask me, like, how'd you get X, Y, and Z? How'd you get Dan Pink? How'd you get Seth Godin? And I'm like, I asked them the question. I sent an email and said, hey, here's what I'm doing, and here's where you fit in. Mm -hmm. Are you interested? And that they say yes still blows my mind. And that's not just for the Seth and the Dans. That's for the Jonathan Fields, and that's for the... You know, Sreeni Rouse and the Susan Pivers and Chelsea Densmores. I'm going to forget names. And Angela knows I hate that. I
2: know.
0: Um, The people have shown up on the street team. It's like been this really great process. I know we all like you only have one. No, you only have one of your first traditionally published books. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's a moment in time. Yeah. And it's a decade in the making. And I understand all that. But it's been that's what's been keeping me in this game. Mm. And keeping me sort of pumped up about it is how many people have shown up to um, support it? And I'm just um, hoping that the goodwill that they've shared with me Mm -hmm. is spread out through this process. And that other people, A, can really see that there's a lot of goodness and abundance around them. Mm -hmm. And B that they got to do some work to harness
1: it. Yeah. Well, thank you for talking with me today. Um, Thank you for letting me dig a little deep in some ways. And again, I just want to say that I think start finishing is a book that a lot of people have been needing for a very long time. And I, for one am so excited that it is out in the world. Um, And I, I, I think that there's a lot of good that's going to come from this for a lot of people.
0: Good. Well, thanks so much. And I suppose we'll go ahead and wrap there. You guys know the drill, except for there's a new addition to the outro.
1: What's that?
0: So until next time, stand tall and start finishing. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that'll help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes.